Welcome to today's episode, everybody. So today we're going to be discussing a couple different topics. For one, body odor. It's such a common symptom that people come to me with. Um, It's just really a sign of toxicity. So we'll get deeper into that. We're going to be breaking down the HPA axis, what it does to the HPT axis and how stress affects the thyroid. And then lastly, we're going to be talking about Lyme and co-infections. What runs together uh, with Lyme and what that looks like. So hang tight and we'll be right back. All right, so let's start with talking about the thyroid. This is such a common symptom, and it is, it honestly is a symptom. Your thyroid is reacting to something else, and a lot of times it's because of chronic long-term stress. So when people are saying, oh, I have um, hypothyroidism for me, I always look at that as secondary. There's always something uh, that your thyroid is responding to. So let's talk about the HPA axis. We know that that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. How does this this um, influence the HPT axis, so the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. So remember, as I say, it's not just a thyroid issue. Um, So let's talk about how cortisol does things like interferes with thyroid hormone production, it overworks the thyroid, it slows your metabolism, and it depletes potassium, which is super important for thyroid uptake. I see potassium low on the HTMA, the um, hair tissue mineral analysis test, all of the time and almost always Um, someone is showing signs of hypothyroidism or adrenal dysfunction. So they're very highly connected. So you can't really treat one without the other. Um, So let's talk for a second. So brain signaling, um, you know, the stress response starts in the brain. So the brain signals to the hypothalamus um, to release CRF. This is going to signal to the pituitary to release ACTH. And this is going to activate the adrenals, releasing cortisol. So it it really thrives on this negative feedback loop. And when it's working appropriately, should halt that stress response once the appropriate cortisol levels are reached, right? But we know we live in a very chronically stressed society and environment. It is what's normalized. So we have this chronic stress response, this long-term activation. And what this does is it stretches out our metabolic reserve. And so our feedback mechanism becomes desensitized, just like anything else, right? Too much of anything, too much insulin, too much cortisol, too much, um, you know, estrogen, all of these things, they end up having systemic effects on the body. So what this does is it causes an extended HPA axis activation, and we are constantly on guard in that chronic state of fight or flight. And we can't appropriately respond to stress because now we're depleted minerally, our nervous system is dysregulated and overactivated. And then we start to see downregulation of things like hormones, the immune system, and specifically in this case that we're talking about, thyroid. So talking about cortisol a tiny bit more, it is supposed to be diurnal. That means it runs on that circadian rhythm that you always hear me refer to. And so when we start to show signs of cortisol dysfunction, circadian rhythm dysfunction, then we're going to start to see those systemic uh, downregulation. So it's really important to know. We're up against a epidemic of thyroid issues where over 20 million people in the U.S. have some sort of thyroid disorder, and 60% of them are not aware. And this is not to say that everyone's so deficient in synthetic thyroid hormone, right? It's just what we're seeing, this long-term effect of the stressful lifestyle that we normalize. 
So when you're hypothyroid, these are the most common symptoms you're going to see. So you're going to have fatigue. You're going to have weight gain or weight loss resistance. You're going to have mood issues. A lot of times brain fog, um, constipation, hair loss, dry skin. And to me, these symptoms are very similar to lots of other symptoms that are um, correlated with, like we said, chronic stress, adrenal dysfunction, um, just really signs that the body is, you know, kind of depleted deficient in lots of things and just responding. I, although it seems dysfunctional, right? It's responding appropriately to chronic stress. So let's talk about how stress affects the HPT, the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. So what it does is it promotes inflammatory cytokines, and this eventually will reduce the hypothalamic pituitary function. Now the hypothalamus and the pituitary are responsible for making TRH, which is going to stimulate thyroxine and so and cause that thyroxine, that stimulating hormone, which travels to the thyroid to produce um, actual thyroid hormone. So when you see that suppression of the HPA axis um, because of overactivation for a long period of time, eventually the TRH and the TSH levels decrease. And then with that decreasing, then we see lower levels of T4, which gets converted into T3, which is our active thyroid hormone. So as we know, you've heard me talk about this before, T4 gets converted into T3, our active form, um, and this is what binds to the receptors. When we have cytokines involved, so whether we have constant immune stimulation, we have some cell pathogens, we have chronic stress, um, high cortisol for too long, all of those things that inhibits this conversion. And so it affects the body systemically. And when you get that immune system imbalance, then you're going to be more likely to have things like autoimmune conditions, um, specifically to the thyroid, like we're discussing. So Graves disease and Hashimoto's. Now, something we don't talk about often is the thyroid's role in gene expression. And so when we have thyroid hormone resistance, we have to know that it's also altering our gene expression. So our DNA gets copied into RNA. And so when we have cytokine um, activity, it suppresses the sensitivity of the thyroid hormone receptors to thyroid hormones, and it reduces that binding. It reduces also gene expression in all areas of the body. So that's why I say it's not just a thyroid issue. Um, it is a system systemic issue. Another thing that this chronic stress response, the HPA axis activation, which alters the HPT axis activation, um, it affects our liver's ability to process estrogen because of the increased thyroid binding globulin. So this binds to in circulation and deactivates active thyroid hormone, and then it leads us to a state where we are high estrogen and subsequently low thyroid because of that, once again, cytokine response that's now inhibiting our receptors for our hormones, for our detoxification, for our thyroid, all the things. So it's thyroid issues don't just stay in the thyroid. So what are some things to consider? If you do have a downregulated thyroid, you've been told, hey, you're, you're hypo, let's get on this you know, synthetic thyroid hormone is what your body's missing, but often you get on it and you don't feel better. So let's think about some of the things that are affecting the thyroid that aren't really being discussed with you because it's not a pill size option, right? It, there's so many things lifestyle-wise that can change this. And I can say from experience, I um, went from having Hashimoto's, I was super uh, hypo for, for about 10 years. And so for me, it took a lot of lifestyle modifications, a lot of things I had to assess and address to get um, in balance the HPA axis and the HPT axis so that they're, they're working 
um, synergistically and they're balancing each other out the way that they're supposed to. So some things to consider is blood sugar balance. You hear me preach this. I will preach it all day long because it's such a hidden source of inflammation a lot of people don't think about. And so our foods, our lifestyles, all these things are contributing to blood sugar irregularity and it is affecting things like our thyroid, our hormones, and everything in between. Um, gut stress and microbiome alone, this can activate that stress response. This can keep you in that state of long-term activation, and it can definitely interfere with the gut-brain axis. And we talked about the brain as being the first step in all of these, uh, you know, all of the hormone responses. The brain is the activating step. So it's always important to make sure that you're considering the gut-brain axis and the role that gut inflammation can have on neuroinflammation. Another thing to look at is food intolerances. This is a really underestimated factor, um, and it is always something that can be causing that underlying inflammation, those cytokine responses um, that you may not even necessarily have things like digestive issues. They could be causing a different sort of immune reaction that is co contributing to systemic inflammation, just like blood sugar. So sometimes it's not going to be an acute state of inflammation. Sometimes it will be an underlying one that is causing systemic inflammation. And then, like I said, that systemic cytokine response that's affecting everything else. Chronic infection. So stealth pathogens, um, things like imbalances in bacteria, um, stealth pathogens like we're going to be talking about, like Lyme and co-infections can definitely play a role. Um, all of those things, parasitic infections, they all can throw that immune system um, and once more elicit that chronic stress response. Environmental toxins, so things like BPA that are endocrine disruptive, um, heavy metals, which go straight to the thyroid, um, halogens, which we always talk about when we're, we're thinking about thyroid issues and also, also radiation, um, radioactive elements, all of those things can throw your system for a loop. They can swing your immune system um, and they can definitely perpetuate these recurring issues as well circadian rhythm. So this is really important because it coincides with our cortisol rhythm. As we talked about, it's not uh, released uniformly during the day. It is actually released as the curve should be with our day. So higher in the morning, lower in the afternoon, lowest at night so that we can get into good, deep, restful sleep. So if we have HPA axis dysfunction, our circadian rhythm is uh, out of alignment. That can definitely correspond to systemic inflammation. It can lead us to more blood sugar imbalances and more just chronic active stress. And then lastly, let's talk about the nervous system. So like we kind of talked about gut inflammation equals neuroinflammation. Um, our nervous system could be um, activated based on what's going on in the gut, but it also can be activated because of learned responses. So a lot of times people are going to have to get in there and do that nervous system work, rewire, work on some neuroplasticity because um, we have a lot of protective mechanisms that are kind of really primal in nature and they are protective for us um, because we you know, you always hear me talk, our bodies activate as much to perceived or imagine stress as they would an actual stressor. So if we are perceiving stress, just thinking about a conflict we might be having, or we're sitting in traffic and we're reacting to that stress, it's going to be the same response, right? And so we have to learn to um, assess our responses to certain triggers and also making sure that we are in a position where we can rewire and work with neuroplasticity to change that response so we're not in a chronic state of stress. And that's one of the harder things to do, but it just takes consistency and it takes awareness. So 
nervous system work is going to be way up there when it comes to any sort of um, thyroid issue, especially if it's a secondary one because of what's going on with the HPA axis. So if I were to help someone with hypothyroidism, as I often do, the first thing I would talk to them about is their stress load. Um, we will talk about stress management. We will look at nutrients and possible nutrient deficiencies, like we were talking about potassium. That's so important for reuptake of thyroid hormone. And you could just be burning through your potassium. You could be drinking plain water. You could be um, you know, activating that chronic stress response that's really burning through your calming minerals. And that's that in itself could be down-regulating your thyroid. Um, so assessing that, looking at those environmental toxins is such a huge one, making sure you're filtering your water, not getting more um, activation from things like environmental toxicities, heavy metals, halogens, like we talked about. Those would be where I would start for sure. Um, and then if necessary, doing some of the um, deeper work as to looking at more chronic infections, um, stealth infections, pathogens, things like that. And then lastly, like I said, um, clinically, I can see if someone, you know, would be a good candidate for some nervous system work. I think everybody really is in the way our society is today. Um, but that can be a really important piece of your healing protocol is working with in sometimes people need the accountability of a program like Gupta or DNRS, um, because it is hard to make it a habit. But once you start doing it, your stress response will respond in a different way. And that can be a huge piece of your puzzle um, when it comes to a hypoactive thyroid. So I hope this provided some good information for you guys. And as you can see, it's so much more than, oh, let's just get on a synthetic thyroid hormone, which maybe, right, can't even be converted or received because maybe the, your receptors are being blocked by cytokines or maybe you have too much thyroid binding globulin. You know, there's so many things that could be contributing. And that's why a lot of people don't feel better just getting on a synthetic um, thyroid medication. Uh, so it's important to assess all of these different factors, especially if you are hypo, are not feeling better on this synthetic medication and, and want to dig a little deeper. There's always uh, different ways and different areas to look at when it comes to thyroid, because like I said, it's responding to something else. It's not just your thyroid. All right, let's switch topics and get into Lyme and co-infections. So Lyme disease um, over 50% of people who have Lyme disease also have a co-infection to go with it. And 30% of them have two or more uh, co-infections. So it's something that I don't really spend a lot of time testing for Lyme. I, you know, clinically know signs and symptoms to look for. And those are really going to just be telling us if our Lyme is actually activated or not often. Um, so for me, there are some good panels. If you really want to dig deep and look into Lyme and co-infections, I will link those up. But for me, it's important to zoom out sometimes because I think some people get so hung up on the title of having Lyme that it's kind of there's some doom behind it. And it's just really important to kind of know that Lyme is usually activated by something else. And so that's why it runs so closely with things like mold, stealth pathogens. And the reason why Lyme gets in the forefront is because of popularity, really. And we don't talk a ton about co-infections. And we aren't really t talking about things like radioactive elements and mold and parasites and all of these other things that activate Lyme in our body. And the important thing to note about Lyme is that it suppresses the 
the immune system. So it makes you more susceptible to having multiple infections, but it's also important to know that they run together. And that's why if you jump into Lyme and you just start treating Lyme, well, for a, for one, a lot of people aren't going to handle it well because Lyme does, you know, like I said, it throws you into a tailspin and makes you so susceptible to so many other things. Um, but you, if you don't get into why is that Lyme being reactivated, why, you know, if you don't do parasite work, mold work, you're not looking at things like radioactive elements, your toxin load, all of those things, um, then your Lyme is going to keep coming back because it's going to be continuing to be reactivated. So let's talk about Lyme. It's a corkscrew-shaped bacterium. It likes to reside in the cranial tissue, synovial fluid, and mucous membranes. Like we said, it's often activated by mold and parasites. It is a vector-based illness, so this can be carried by ticks, fleas, spiders, and mosquitoes. And there is even evidence showing now that it could be sexually transmitted and possibly even passed down from mother to baby in utero. So like I said, it's never just Lyme. You can test positive and have no symptoms at all. What happens is the activation by environmental exposures, imbalances in the body, things like mold, all of those things that suppress homeostasis, and this could be an acute infection or even a trauma, right? So it's not always just uh, digging deep and blaming mold or whatever these other things are. It could be something as simple as a life stressor or a trauma that's going to activate Lyme. And you see this really commonly um, with Lyme patients. You know, um, when you see flares and things like that, a lot of times it is activated by life stress. So let's talk about some of the symptoms. And this is more chronic symptoms that we're talking about because we, we're always looking for that bullseye rash, but that's honestly only in about 30% of Lyme patients. And that's only if they're tick-borne. Um, and we know that that's not the only vector invo involved. So when I think about chronic Lyme, I'm thinking depression, anxiety, mood swings, brain fog, cognitive decline, um, Alzheimer's even, neuropathy, immune dysfunction, cardiovascular symptoms, um, traveling pain. So it's in one shoulder and then it's in the next, or it's one hip and then it's in the next. And like, like we said, why is this so common? Well, we are seeing more and more mold toxicity. We're seeing more environmental toxins. Let's rewind just for a second. The mold toxicity is even worse now because of the EMF exposure. So we know that EMFs cause mold to proliferate more um, when, when it's in the same environment. So that is going to be a huge player as to why we are seeing more and more mold. Uh, heavy metals, of course, gut imbalances, radioactive elements, those are all affecting the immune system as well. Now let's talk about some of the most common cofactors that I see um, with chronic Lyme patients. So Babesia, this is one I specifically had as well. So this is a microscopic parasite. Um, this will cause symptoms of things like night sweats, panic and anxiety attacks, frontal headaches, feeling off balance, heart palpitations, deja vu even, and vivid dreams. And then air hunger is one that's very telltale um, for Babesia. Another one that I see commonly run together with Lyme is um, Bartonella, so cat scratch disease. This can cause hallucinations. It can cause weight loss. It can contribute to things like PANS, um, which we see often in children. Uh, it can lead to fatigue, especially in your muscles. It can lead to neurological symptoms. It can even lead to aggressiveness and violence, um, cognitive dysfunction, as well as brain fog. 
So a few other opportunistic infections that I see commonly run along with Lyme, and these can often be found on the Lyme panels, of course. So um, I will link up the Vibrant. This is the only Lyme panel that I really like, to be honest, but it's going to look at the IgG and the IgM of lots of these co-infections as well as the actual Borrelia bacteria. Um, So some other ones that I see that can be tested for are mycoplasma, Ehrlichia and cytomegalovirus and toxoplasma. So these are all ones that I frequently see, and it's going to test for even more than that, but these are the ones that I see frequently run together. You know, can it be good to have a baseline? Absolutely. But the important thing to note, and this is why I don't start with Lyme panels, is because you don't start with Lyme and you don't start with these co-infections. So let's talk about what you do start with. So of course, just like anything else, right, we have to assess our actual environment. So let's look at toxin load, and that's why I run a total toxin test on almost everyone who I start with anymore. So we can look at things like mycotoxins, we can look at VOCs, we can look at organophosphates, um, phthalates, parabens, all of these environmental toxicities, heavy metals um, that are going to suppress the immune system even more because we know that Lyme already does that, right? So we need to remove all the other things that are are suppressing the immune system as well so that we have a giving chance in fighting these stealth infections. Of course, gut health has to be assessed and addressed because that is the base of our immune system. So focusing on anti-inflammatory foods, running an organic acid test or a GI map even, and looking at your balance of microbiome, looking for signs of inflammation, signs of dysbiosis, this is going to be super supportive. Supporting your immune system, so whether that means, you know, working with a practitioner, supporting with herbals, looking at things like your vitamin C, vitamin D, all of those things are really important. Your zinc levels, which can be looked at on a hair tissue mineral analysis test, um, those are going to be really important as well because you're going to need to make sure that you're removing things that are affecting the immune system while also supporting it. Stress management is huge. As you can see, the what the chronic HPA axis activation can do to things like thyroid, well, of course, it's going to also um, elicit that cytokine response that's going to affect your immune system systemically. So stress management has to be as part of that healing uh, protocol. So working with a practitioner or just finding ways that you can manage your stress day to day is going to be super important as well. Drainage, drainage, drainage. You hear me talk so much about that, but we have to make sure. So if we um, locate these toxicities, right, and we locate these imbalances, we have to look at the body's ability to clear them out. So addressing things like we talked about gut inflammation, making sure that your body can properly drain, look at indicators of detoxification when it comes to phase one and phase two liver detoxification, make sure those are both working properly um, because we know that phase one is neutralizing uh, toxins. Phase two is what's going to package them up and make them water soluble. And phase three actually moves them out. So if we're not able to move them out, or let's just say our bile is toxic and sluggish, um, or we don't have a gallbladder, so we're, we're deficient in bile and we're, we're unable to move those things out fluidly, those are all going to affect your body's systemic drainage. Um, so looking at things like that, moving the lymph, that's going to be a huge one when it comes to Lyme patients. Um, so all of these things really need to be taken into consideration first before trying to kill, quote unquote, Lyme and find balance in the body. Another thing that's really not 
addressed much when it comes to Lyme is supporting from a cellular level. So working on cell membrane, uh, doing things like phosphatidylcholine and balance oil, which is going to be a perfect omega balance uh, between omega-3s and omega-6s to help manage some of that inflammation um, and help move toxins out of the cell. And when I say toxins, it's also uh, endotoxins, biotoxins, um, making sure they're able to even move out of the cell, making sure you're not caught in that cell danger response, which is going to make your cells freeze up uh, and you're not able to move things in and out of them. Uh, so you really need to kind of support on a cellular level, of course, as you are before you even start to try to detox or work on any Lyme killing uh, protocols for sure. Herbals can be extremely helpful, yes, but you want to make sure you're doing all of these things first. So you don't want to jump into Lyme or like I said, you're going to be redoing it because you're going to be reactivated by things, stealth pathogens, parasites, and the toxicities, all of those things. I also like when people incorporate ozone therapy. So usually ozone IV is super supportive for Lyme patients. And so um, what this does is, you know, bacteria hates pure oxygen, right? And so that ozone can really get into the bloodstream and do its thing and support. And I like doing that along with an herbal um, for sure when it comes to Lyme. Um Temperature therapies, so hyperthermia has been proven to have lots of good effect on Lyme bacteria. So essentially they put you into a medically induced fever that can be really supportive as well. Um, but you can even do that on a small scale, right, with the sauna. So making sure that's part of your drainage protocol, uh, working your way up to a sauna, because a lot of Lyme patients are super sensitive. And so until you start supporting the immune system and kind of clearing the body of some of the other things that are throwing it off, um, sometimes they can't really even tolerate a sauna at, at that moment. So especially if they are um, also being activated by mold. So kind of working through all of those layers and then doing some of this, like I said, herbal, temperature, um, ozone work, all of those can be very uh, supportive. Make sure you're not living in mold. I wrote that in big all caps, make sure you're not living in mold because you're going to be just treading water if you're doing any of these sort of therapies and not addressing your actual environment. So super important. Looking at radioactive elements, um, you can look at this through urine on the Vibrant Total Toxin Lab. I will link that up in the show notes. Um, a lot of times these radioactive elements are going to come through our water supply, but if you've had any radiation therapies in your past, um, people who have had their thyroid removed or, you know, it's been treated radioactively to remove it, that's really important to make sure that you're removing that radiation from your body because that could be contributing to recurring symptoms as well. Um, and then of course, making sure that you're not just treating Lyme, but you're running through all of these, um, important co-infections and stealth pathogens and intracellular bacterium and all of those things because they do run together. And so it's never just Lyme. So my big takeaway from this is yes, Lyme is a problem, but it's not the only problem. Lyme is a problem because your immune system is suppressed. So what is suppressing your immune system? That is the key. 
So is it toxicity? Is it your environment? Um, all of these things, but try not to focus and zoom in on just the lime. I think, and what I see is this causes a lot of, I just got to get all the lime out. And so I think if you do that, you could be missing the mark on the other things that are causing the lime to be a really big problem. So that's just my take on it. What I've experienced with uh, co-infections myself and what I see clinically is to kind of zoom out, look at the body as a system, look at your drainage pathways, and look at your environment internally, externally, um, and then, of course, bring in the lifestyle things like stress management, um, chronic stress response, circadian rhythm. All of those things are going to be really important as well. Okay, so let's switch gears once again and talk about body odor and what it could mean um, what's going on with your health systemically. So this sounds a little off topic, but actually it's a really common symptom that I see people coming to me with. And it really is to me a sign that your drainage is pretty stuck, that you might need some liver support, um, all of these things. So different, so different scents can tell us different things. I'm sure the breast implant illness community can definitely, um, feel me when I say, uh, a lot of them come to me and they say their their body odor smells like metallic soup. Um, that is a sure sign that your toxicity is very full and that your lymph is very stuck. Um, sometimes we'll smell things like ammonia. That means that your liver is very stuck. Um, so different things. Uh, sulfur type of smell can be an indicator that you are having trouble processing sulfur compounds. So another phase of liver detoxification called sulfation. So, so many different things. And it's important important to know that sweat is actually odorless. So what is coming out of your body is really reflecting on what is going on internally. So for me, when I think of body odor, it's, um, you have to clean the body from the inside out and we need to sweat. So you, it's not that, Oh, let's just get on an antiperspirant. We know that those are loaded with things like endocrine disruptors, heavy metals, all of those things. And that's what stops you from sweating. Um, we definitely don't want that. We need to sweat. Um, we obviously just don't want it to stink. Right. And so when you're sweating toxic byproducts, uh, things because of exposures in our food, our environment, biotoxins, and things like that, that's what makes it smell. Also, sweat can be activated by things that bacteria, the byproducts that bacteria and metabolites are putting off onto our skin. So let's just say we can have an overgrowth of something like staph or some other infection on the skin. And so when the sweat hits that microbe, it causes an off-gassing or a byproduct, and that can also lead to a smell as well. So lots of different factors need to be um, taken into account. Now, did you know that there's 2% of the population that has what's called the ABCC11 gene, and this makes them body odorless and also earwax free. So that lucky 2% doesn't have to really worry about this, unless I would say if their toxin load gets uh, too full, that could always kind of counter that gene for sure and that gene expression. Um, but for the other 98% of us, uh, it's really important to see, look at toxic load, imbalanced bacteria, and then of course drainage, so skin and lymph for sure. Now let's talk about a lot of the common triggers of body odor. So a lot of, like we talked about, there's could be an imbalance in, in bacteria that can create uh, medium and short chain fatty acids, um, things like staph, things like VOCs. 
Um, other bacteria, of course, sulfur compounds. So this is once again, an indicator that our sulfation pathway might need a little bit of support. So um, we need to look at liver detoxification, alcohol, um, spicy foods, too much acidity. This causes urea producing compounds. So this could lead to a very distinct smell as well. Poor gut function. So leaky gut, bacterial overgrowth, all of those things. So supporting digestion and a healthy microbiome is going to be a, a key player in this as well. Stress can definitely, there is a psychological component to regulating apricot sweating and apricot are the sweat glands that um, are producing sweat in areas that could lead to body odor. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So making sure that you're getting proper sleep, making sure that you're incorporating stress management and avoiding burnout is going to be a huge component too. Um, toxins on the surface of the skin. So, you know, we could just be reacting to our toxic deodorant or the toxic soap or lotion that is on our skin as well. That in itself could be creating a scent because our body's trying to push it out. Um, think about We'll talk about lymph in just a little bit, but right in our armpit, we have a huge lymph drainage system. And so off, if you know, or you're familiar with dry brushing, that's going to be one of those areas where we kind of open up that lymph there. Um, but that is going to be a big player in trying to push out toxins, um, and where, where our lymph can get stuck in that area. So heavy metals from conventional deodorants, um, all of those things, Make sure that you are moving your lymph. Like we just said, you can dry brush. You can make sure that you're hydrating well with minerals, of course, never plain water. Make sure that you're structuring your water. Minerals, of course, are going to be a huge player in that, but other things structure our water like sauna, sunlight, things like that as well. Um, red light therapy. And then of course, Epsom salt baths can be very supportive as well as magnesium flake baths. If we're trying to support our skin pathway, get our lymph moving, things like that. Some more triggers are seed oils, processed foods. They're going to contribute to oxidative stress, more strain on the liver, more strain on the lymph. Like I always say with skin conditions, right? What your bile and your liver can't move up, move out comes to the surface of your skin. So making sure we're supporting all the drainage, of course, and then acidity in the body. So this can be driven by sugar. It can be driven by refined foods. It can be driven by oxalate formation. So possibly yeast, fungal, candida overgrowth, um, stealth pathogens, things like that creates stress on the kidneys and it alters our pH. So this forms urea and uric acid, and those can contribute to body odor as well. Uh, hormones, of course. So women especially have lots of changes during our cycle. Uh, our alkalinity during our actual menstrual phase is going to make us more likely to have a stronger odor. So making sure we're doing all the things to support drainage um, and using very clean soap and things like that, that's going to be a huge player. Also, we have different times in our life, um, puberty, pregnancy, postpartum, things like that, um, that can trigger different effects as well. A uh, nervous system component, of course, just like anything we talk, there is a psychological part um, in stress and sweat regulation. Um, so that can be a part of it too. And then of course, lowering inflammation across the board, supporting drainage, liver, blood sugar, all of those things as well.
So surprise, surprise, once again, it's not a topical issue, right? And so, you know, sometimes if it is a topical thing, it could be that your body's trying to push out toxins on your skin. Um, but is it going to be solved topically? Not necessarily. Now, if this is something you are detoxing, you're in the middle of a detox program and you feel like your body odor is getting worse, you can certainly do armpit packs uh, where you would mix your binder with some water and leave it on your armpit for 15, 20 minutes and let it do its thing and moving those toxins out because that is part of your drainage pathway, right? Our sweat is part of our drainage pathway. And so we want to support the movement of things through our skin by things like sweating, uh, dry brushing, Epsom salt baths, and we want to make sure that we're moving lymph. So whether you're going to get lymph massages, you're doing manual massages, whatever that looks like for you, um, like I said, drinking plenty of water, that's going to be really supportive um, if body odor is a thing. And like I said, if it's getting worse while you're detoxing as well. Um, a lot of breast implant women know that, you know, this is a huge part of their journey because like I said, your breast implants are right there beside where all those lymph drainage pathways are. Um, so that is going to be a huge uh, contributor because your lymph is constantly getting stuck in that area. And it's really trying to move out that toxin load that's created by the breast implant. So that can be a huge um, support too. If you still have implants or if you had them removed, make sure you're moving your lymph and getting those toxins out because they're trying to uh, move through your lymphatic system. So if body odor is an issue for you, definitely, like I said, assess the gut, assess imbalances in the microbiome, bacteria. That's going to be, uh, you know, first step. Uh, look at your toxicities. So consider the products you're putting on your skin. Um, as far as cleaning the skin, especially in those areas that are, are more likely to have odor associated, I would definitely do an unscented soap. Um, even a colloidal silver soap can be really supportive if you suspect that you have bacteria in that area or even a citricidal. So I'll link those up in the show notes for sure. Um, if you think that it could be contributing to that and a citricidal is essentially grapeseed extract based soap. It's going to help with pathogens and bacteria on the surface of the skin. If you feel like that's part of your, um, issue. Uh, look at heavy metals, of course, because they are always trying to push out through the skin pathway. Support that with things like sauna and Epsom salt baths for sure. Move the lymph. We talked about that. Drink more water, especially structured water. Um, support liver and drainage, especially if you are one of those lucky ones that has that smell of ammonia. That is a clear sign that you need to do some liver support. So talk to your practitioner about supplementation, but do the things like castor oil, um, stopping the exposure, of course, of the toxicities coming in and, and supporting movement of what's already there out of the body. Um, watch stimulants like spicy foods. Um, even caffeine can be a stimulant as too. And then, um, like I said, do the armpit detoxes with binders. And um, some even have some apple cider vinegar with it as well that can really help correct that pH balance that's in those areas. So I, um, as far as natural deodorants go, I do like Beauty Counter. I like Primally Pure. I will link those in my show notes. Um, but some people I will say, and I'm one of them, are sensitive to the baking soda, even in natural deodorants. So you may try for a brand that is baking soda free, especially if you notice that after some time you develop a rash and it's usually not an immediate reaction. It's kind of like a buildup over time of that sodium bicarbonate. Um, so if you notice that's you and that is totally me and it will take months to have that build up before my body starts reacting to it. Um, 
So if that's you, definitely go for a uh, baking soda free deodorant um, as well. So I will link a couple of those up in the show notes as well. Um, I hope this gave somebody some insight on what to look for if this is a common symptom for you and also things to support if it's getting worse during detox and also if you're dealing with breast implants or have dealt with breast implants, um, some things that you can do and work on in moving the body. Um, Thank you guys so much for these topics. I am so excited about next week's episode, but if you guys need anything else until then, shoot me an email at vibewellpodcast at gmail.com. Go follow me on Instagram at dr.stacy.nd and I will be back on soon. Have a great rest of your day.